Exodus chapter 19 this evening. I noted at some point in this series that you could divide the book of Exodus into three essential redemptive historical events that occur in Israel's history. You have God's dealing with Israel in the Exodus and bringing them out of bondage to Egypt. You have God's dealings with them at the mountain, which we're going to see tonight at the very beginning of the establishment of the Mosaic Covenant in Sinai. And then you have all of the details about the tabernacle and God's call for Israel to worship him in a particular way in that tabernacle worship. And so the Exodus, Sinai, and the tabernacle become the structuring events in redemptive history for Israel. And we are looking this evening at Exodus chapter 19. We're going to read the totality of the chapter. And just for the sake of context, it will help you to know that really chapters 19 and 20 go together. This is Israel coming to the mountain, Moses going up on the mountain, God giving uh, Israel all of his words and preparations about what it's going to mean for them to worship him at the mountain. God revealing himself in great power and might and terror at the mountain. And then, as you know, in chapter 20, God giving them the Ten Commandments, the moral laws, the very beginning and the kernel of all the other laws that he's going to give in the Mosaic Covenant. And so chapter 19 is really, in one sense, a prologue, though theologians often talk about chapter 20, verse 2 being the prologue. I believe chapter 19 is really the prologue to the giving of the Ten Commandments at Sinai. And now, as Moses has received that counsel from his father-in-law, Jethro, he has appointed those leaders to help him in the very daunting task of shepherding God's people in the wilderness. Now we read this. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness there Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set, them, set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Oh, that they really had hearts. That meant what they were saying. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. 
Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the people to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the mountain, I'm sorry, and as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called to Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourselves warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, The grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I mentioned this morning the Pilgrim's Progress, and if you want a sermon illustration for every passage in Scripture, read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, because there is a veritable illustration for just about everything in Scripture in it. And one of the things that you find as you're reading the Pilgrim's Progress is that great wrestling in the soul of Christian, which is obviously a representative of Bunyan himself, as remember he had that great burden on his back and his his great desire was, how do I get rid of this burden? And you'll remember that he had met the evangelist and the evangelist had told him to go through the wicked gate and then ultimately to the cross. And you know what happens when he finally comes to the cross and the burden rolls into the tomb. But before that happens, Bunyan begins to meet various characters along the way. And these are individuals in life. These are men and women that you will meet in your life. These are men and women, perhaps, who are even present here this morning. Remember, I'm sorry, this evening. It's not this morning. Um, I remember a number of years ago realizing that every character in the Pilgrim's Progress are people that we either are or have met. And one of those characters that Christian meets as he is making his way to get rid of his burden is a man named Mr. Morality. And Mr. Morality seems like a good man, a man that wants to help him. And Mr. Morality tells him, listen, I know how you can get rid of your burden. And, and Christian tells him, well, the evangelist told me to do such and such. And he says, no, 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 there is a much better way. You need to go over this hill and you need to find a man named Mr. Legality. And he, he will help you get rid of your burden. And as Bunyan makes this 
uh, account and unfolds it, listen to what he says. He says, Christian turned out of his way to go to Mr. Legality's house for help. But behold, when he had gotten to the hard by the hill, it seemed so high. And also the side of it that was next to the wayside did hang so much over that Christian was afraid to venture farther, lest the hill should fall on his head. When, therefore, he stood still, he did not know what to do. Also, his burden now seemed heavier to him than while he was in his way. There also came flashes of fire out of the hill that made Christian afraid that he should be burnt. Here, therefore, he started to sweat and quake for fear. And now he began to be sorry that he had been taken by worldly wise man's counsel. And with that, he saw evangelists coming to meet him and at the sight of whom he began to blush for shame. Now, he will get redirected on his course. He will make his way to the cross. But the point that Bunyan is trying to press is, is out of the illustration of what's in the chapter before us. Here, God has brought Israel to the very foot of Sinai. And it is not a welcoming place for Israel. There is nothing about this chapter that ought to invite you to draw close to the Lord. In fact, everything in this chapter is the Lord saying, do not come close to me. Now, that might be confusing because the Lord has redeemed Israel. He has brought them out by his grace. He has rescued them. He has provided for them. He has protected them. He has shown them that his relationship to them is entirely by grace. But now he brings them to the place where they are going to be called to worship him. And it doesn't feel like grace. It feels like terror. It feels like uh, an overwhelming sense of God's majestic presence saying, you are so sinful, you cannot come near me. And we are supposed to have that sense when we come to this chapter. This is not only God manifesting his holiness to a people he has saved, this is God essentially saying to a people there at the foot of the mountain, you are too sinful to come into my presence and what is going to happen is you are going to have to realize the terror and the dread of who I am as the infinitely holy God. If you are ever going to understand what it is I am going to do for you to enable you to come into my presence. It's very interesting before I say anything else, if you were to get 20 commentaries out on Exodus, if you were to get sermons in the history of the church out, there are so many different opinions about how we're to read what's going on in this chapter. And I'm going to argue tonight, and we'll see this at the very end, that in order for us to understand what's going on in this chapter, we have to go all the way to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 18 to 24, where the writer of Hebrews is going to contrast Mount Sinai with Mount Zion, the old covenant with the new covenant. Now, as I said, this is the inauguration of the Mosaic covenant. Up till this point, God has not begun to yet formally enter into covenant with Israel. This is the place where that covenant is going to be made, and God is going to enter into it throughout the next 15 chapters of Exodus. He is going to, to give all of these intricate laws and details, his dealings with Moses as the mediator, and yet the Lord is bringing Israel there to show them that he is Jehovah and that he is going to enter into this brief, this covenant with them, at Sinai. 
Now, I want us to consider just two things tonight. First, I want us to consider the Mosaic Covenant inaugurated, and then I want us to consider the Smoking Mountain, the Mosaic Covenant inaugurated, and the Smoking Mountain. Well, notice that Israel has now come to the foot of the mountain, and God is now going to do something very special for them. Notice this. The Lord calls to Moses from the mountain, verse 3, and he says, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, the Lord is going to do something very simple. He is going to remind Israel of what he's done for them. He's going to tell them what he's doing for them, and then he's going to tell them what he's going to do for them. He is reminding them of his past dealings. He is going to tell them in this section what he is going to do, and he's going to tell them what's going to happen to them. And you'll notice that as he begins to initiate this covenant, he reminds them, first of all, of that salvation that he has given them by grace. He is going to remind them, you see what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, that is hugely important because one of the mistakes that theologians have made over the years as they've looked in this chapter is some have said that the Mosaic Covenant is a covenant of works and God is not doing a gracious thing with Israel. He is telling them, get to work. God is not doing that. God is actually reminding them that my covenant is built on my former gracious promise to Abraham that I was going to make a nation out of Abraham through whom the nations were going to be blessed. Notice that even the theocratic kingdom is being established. Notice verse 6. He says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is the first time the theocracy is mentioned. In the Old Covenant, God is going to create a visible nation. And they are going to be a priesthood. They are going to have a religious side to them. And they are also going to have a secular side to them. They're going to be a kingdom. There's going to be a sphere that is not a sphere of worship, but all of life. And Israel is going to be a distinct nation because God had promised Abraham that he was going to make a great nation out of him. And we know that the purpose of that is that the Redeemer was going to come to that nation. And the nations of earth were going to be blessed in him. But the first thing that God says to them essentially is, I am the God of grace who already redeemed you out of bondage. I have called you to myself. And even what I'm doing right now is part of my gracious covenantal dealings with you. Now, we're going to see later, going back to what I opened with, that there are legal conditions that are not gracious in the Mosaic Covenant. But the essential covenant itself is built on the previous grace that God had given to Abraham and the further grace that he was dealing with Israel in. Now that's comforting because what, what essentially is happening here is the Lord doesn't want Israel to think that now they have to shift gears from living by his grace and mercy and the redemption that they freely received from him 
into works righteousness. That is not what the Lord is doing. Even when God is going to call them to obey, he is not saying to them, I did my part, now if you'll do your part, then together cooperatively you will be saved. No, he says, I already saved you. I already delivered you. Now what I am doing by entering into this covenant with you is something very distinct and something very necessary for you. Now let me say this. He does say, There in verse 5, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. There are two ways that we can understand this. The first, in keeping with God's continuing gracious dealing, is that God is essentially saying to Israel, look, it is good for you to have my commandments It is good for you to know what sin is and what sin is not. It is good for you to have a revelation of my law by which you can walk in my ways as a redeemed people. That is a good thing. It it would not be a good thing if God withheld his commandments from his people. It would not be a good and gracious thing if God said to his people, just go on living a sinful lifestyle. I don't care about your holiness. So there is, in one very real sense, God saying to them, I am about to give you my commandments. They are good. As Paul says, they are holy. They are true. We are not justified by them. We are not condemned by them in Christ. But they are good for your sanctification as those who have already been redeemed by my grace. The best way I've ever heard this explained, my friend Chuck Barrett's father is a professor, it used to be at Bob Jones and now at Puritan Seminary in Grand Rapids, and he said once, the best way to look at God's law in light of the gracious redemption we already have in Christ is that once we're in Christ, God's law becomes the boundary markers of our sanctification. It becomes the sphere of our sanctification. It's not meant for us to try to work harder, do better, and maybe God will accept me. In fact, that's an insult to God, and that will crush you like the mountain was ready to crush Christian. But if we understand that redemption precedes what God is doing here, and we understand that even in the Mosaic covenant, God is entering into a covenant with his people by which he is saying, it is even good for you to have my commandments. It's good for you to know what is right and true. It's good for you to know what is sin so that you can avoid it. It's good for you to live lives pursuing obedience to me because that is the way of fellowship with God. Look, we all know That when we live disobediently, we have no fellowship with God, even if we're redeemed. I've never met a Christian saying, Pastor, I've been looking at pornography for 15 years and I've never had such sweet communion with God. Never. That will not happen. Because if we live in sin, that fellowship is broken, it's breached. Now that can be healed through repentance and Christ has atoned for our sins. But God's commandments are good and right and true. And the believer cries out with David, how I love your law. I want to obey the Lord. I know that I can't obey him perfectly. But God is calling us into lives of consecrated obedience to him. There is, however, another sense 
and I want to really emphasize this, in which there is the legal conditions of the covenant. I've talked to you in the past about um, evangelical conditions and legal conditions. What we just talked about would be the evangelical conditions. You're not justified by your desire to obey, but God wants you to obey. He's redeemed you to obey. He's given you a heart to obey. But there is another sense where there is a legal requirement and condition to the covenant. And that is, as our Westminster standards so clearly state in four different places, that God requires of his law of all men perfect, personal, and perpetual, continual obedience. That what God requires, what must happen, is that his law must be kept in entirety. When God says to Israel, in verse 5, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be, you are meant to understand he means keep it perfectly. You see, God doesn't grade on a curve. The infinite, eternal God, who is of purer eyes than to look upon evil, doesn't look at you and say, you know what? I know he and she can't really do it, so I'm going to grade on a curve. No, he always has a standard of perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience. Listen to this, Phil Riken, reflecting on kind of the both and here, but noting the legal conditions. He says, perfect obedience is a condition that God's people were unable to meet. Because of their sin, the Israelites never fulfilled their covenant obligations. As they struggled and failed to keep God's law, they realized their need for grace all the more and looked for a Savior who could keep God's covenant. They were waiting for Jesus Christ, who is the mediator of a new covenant, who has died as a ransom to set us free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Jesus also died for us, we too are covenant breakers. But Christ has offered full obedience to God for us. He has suffered the penalty that we deserve for our sins. Listen to this. God's covenant is unconditional for us. Listen carefully. God's covenant is unconditional for us because Christ has kept its conditions. We keep the covenant in Christ. We have kept the covenant because Christ is the covenant keeper. My dad said to me many years ago, he said, Nick, uh, he's right, nobody's still written this book. He said a great title to a book would be The Covenant-Making and the Covenant-Keeping God. Because God makes the covenant, he holds out the legal demands, Israel is not going to keep those demands, and you are not going to keep those demands. And I am not going to keep those demands, and so there must be another. Um, this is where we get our doctrine of the active imputed righteousness of Christ. That why did Jesus, why did Jesus have to come as an Israelite? Why couldn't he have come as a Gentile? Why, why did Jesus have to be born under the law? Why did the God who is going to give the law at Sinai have to be placed under it? Why did Jesus, after he healed a leper, send him to the priest as a testimony to Moses? Why did Jesus have to keep the law perfectly every second of his life until he died on the cross? Because, Paul will say, he had to redeem us from the curse of the law. 
He had to fulfill the law's requirements. He obeyed the law. He would be the covenant keeper. This is why, by the way, notice the promise. If you do this, you will be my treasured possession. That means that you should not be God's treasured possession because you did not keep it. Israel is standing here at the foot of the mountain. Listen to this. John Owen says, it's evident that here at Sinai, the Israelites bore the persons of convicted sinners under the sentence of the law. That's why they're terrified. That's why God is saying to them, don't come near. You can't come into my presence. You see, God is wanting them to understand. And this is why Paul says, why then did God give the law? To make sin exceedingly sinful. Listen, you have to be crushed under the law before you will ever really understand what Christ did. You have to be crushed at the foot of Sinai before you will ever understand the fullness and the magnitude of who Jesus is and what he has done. We will only ever be covenant keepers in him by faith alone because he is the covenant keeper who kept the legal demands. Um, notice that promise. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You know how I know that this has to move through Christ for us to be the recipients of that promise? Because when we come to 1 Peter, Peter sets out all that Jesus has done for us, all that he has accomplished in his death and resurrection. And he says, you are a holy nation. You are a royal priesthood in the new covenant because of Christ. This is fulfilled in Christ. Israel will never, ever obey the covenant. The whole long, sad history of Israel is in covenant breaking time and time and time again until the covenant keeping Christ comes, who is the true Israel, who does what Israel fails to do, who takes the curse that Israel deserves in order to secure the blessings for us who are in him by faith. Well, I want us to notice it's not just the covenant inaugurated by um, God entering into that covenant, giving his covenant conditions and promises, but also now we see this call for the people to prepare to worship. And um, Moses is going to come down to the people and he's going to tell them, wash your clothes, and especially the priest, wash your clothes. And you're going to come into the presence of God. Now, let me just say this tonight. I had a seminary prof who said, this is why you should wear your best to church on Sunday. Y'all, that's just painful. That is painful eisegesis that is not in this passage. This is ceremonial cleansing in the Old Covenant. This is a prefiguration of the greater need that we have to have our souls washed. This is why when the writer of Hebrews takes up the, the comparison between the old covenant and the new covenant and the worship of God and the two mountains, he's going to say, look, they may have had their bodies sprinkled with water or with hyssop externally, but we have our consciences cleansed with the blood of Jesus. How am I to come into worship? I must make sure that my conscience is sprinkled clean with the blood of Jesus from dead works so that I can serve the living and true God. 
This is why the book of Hebrews is so vital in us understanding what's happening here in the Mosaic Covenant. God is, yes, interested in Israel, knowing that they can only come into his presence if they're clean. He is telling them, you must worship me the way I tell you to worship me. He is calling them to prepare themselves for worship. And there are a myriad of lessons for us there. But this is the old covenant. This is ceremonial. This is anticipatory. This is preparatory. This is not what God is calling us to do. He is calling us to the greater thing of coming into his presence, having our bodies washed, as it were, with pure water and our consciences cleansed from dead works in the gospel. Now, I want us to consider the smoking mountain. The people go and they clean themselves and Moses goes back up to the Lord. And by the way, there is here, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, there are these different levels at the mountain. It is very much like the temple with its different, its different courts. This is the dwelling place of God before the tabernacle and before the temple. There is a threefold division, and Moses is going to go up. Moses is going to bring the elders later on. The people have to stay outside. The courtyard, as it were, has to be marked off to say, you cannot come into my presence. The way into the holiness is not open. The way into the holy place is not open to you. And notice in verse Nine, Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their, their garments. And then notice, the Lord says in verse 12, you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. Now, again, I noted at the outset, this doesn't sound very welcoming. This doesn't sound very inviting into the presence of God. What is, what is happening? Well, we're going to see here that, um, that the mountain is already covered in a cloud at the beginning of the chapter. And then notice verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain in a very loud trumpet blast. Um, remember, fire has this significant place in the book of Exodus when God comes in those theophanies. Remember, the first theophany was back in chapter 3, verse 2, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush. It was just a little bush that was burning. And God revealed himself as the great I am. And this was a very powerful theophany at the call of Moses. And then if you fast forward to chapter 13, 31, remember it says that the Lord came down and he went before the people in the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. That little fire in the bush has now become a great fire pillar going up into heaven. And now that the people are led to the place of the worship of God, where God is going to come down, it is as if a volcano of God's theophany and presence is erupting in such a visible form that there is darkness and blackness and fire and terror and, and a trumpet accompanying the voice of God. The people are going to say, don't let him speak to us anymore. It is so terrible. That the writer of Hebrews says, reflecting on this, that even if an animal wandered out of place and touched the mountain, it should be put to death. 
and that Moses himself was very fearful. Now, this is, I believe, slavish fear, what old theologians are going to call slavish fear. It's not a good fear. Um, We are not called to serve God out of slavish fear. We are not to live our lives under the dread of his wrath and terror. We are to recognize that he is a consuming fire. We are to have that holy reverence for him that is fitting of a creature to the creator. But there is an ungodly fear. And that fear is wrought when a sinful conscience comes into, as it were, the presence of God. And that's what you have at Sinai. As as John Owen said again, here the Israelites bore the person of convicted sinners under the sentence of the law. Listen to this. As they stood and heard and received the law, they represented sinners under the sentence of it, not yet relieved by the gospel. Don't miss that. Though there were some justified people in Israel, the bulk of the people, which we'll later see, were not truly converted. And as they stand here at the foot of the mountain, I think Owen's right, they are standing Hearing and receiving the law, they are represented as sinners under the sentence of it, not yet relieved by the gospel. Why do I think Owen is right? Turn over to Hebrews 12, and let's look as we close together at that great passage where the writer of Hebrews is contrasting the old covenant and the new covenant. By the way, the Abrahamic covenant is not the old covenant. The Mosaic covenant is the old covenant. Please don't get that wrong. The Abrahamic covenant is one and the same with the new covenant in substance. The Mosaic covenant was mechanistically added onto the covenant of grace as a covenant of law. Though there were promises undergirding it, it was a covenant of law. And when the writer of Hebrews contrasts the old covenant with the new, and when he says what is old is passing away and obsolete, he is talking about the Mosaic covenant. You, if I can say this as definitively as I can say it tonight, you are not in any way, shape, or form under the Mosaic law. You are in no way whatsoever under the Mosaic covenant. If there is one thing that is so explicitly clear in the pages of the New Testament is that you are not under the Mosaic Covenant because Christ came under it. He took the curse of it. He delivered his people. He secured the blessing. He instituted the new covenant in his blood. And so when the writer of Hebrews is contrasting those two covenants, he is going to talk about them under the imagery of the earthly mountain Sinai and the heavenly mountain that we come to in worship, which is Mount Zion. Now notice this. Look at Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 18. The writer of Hebrews now says to new covenant believers, you have not come to what may be touched. He's saying a physical mountain, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, and a tempest. And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose word made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now notice this, the contrast. But you have come to Mount Zion, 
Now there's, there's no lightning. There's no thunder. There's no fire. There's no trumpet. Don't miss that. This is not me. This is the writer of Hebrews under inspiration of the Spirit. You have come to a different mountain, Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men and women made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You know what's missing in Exodus 19? There's no sacrifice. Isn't that interesting? God told the people, go prepare yourselves, consecrate yourselves, wash your clothes, but there's no blood sacrifice. How can they come into the presence of God without a sacrifice? That's, that's the unfolding of the history of redemption. There's got to be a sacrifice, and we learn as we go on in the Old Covenant it's not the blood of the bulls and the goats that take away. Remember when, remember when, when, when Solomon institutes the temple and dedicates the temple, he sacrifices 20,000 oxen. What's the point? The oxen couldn't take away the sins of the people. And so there has to be a better sacrifice. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, you, when you come to worship God, don't come to this fiery, flaming, cloudy mountain that's terrifying you come into the very heavenly city of God. You come to Mount Zion because Jesus has shed his blood to remove the terror of the law. We're going to sing here in a moment. I love these words. Isaac Watts, uh, let us love and sing and wonder. He says, let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. I want to ask you, when you look at the cross, do you understand that's what's happening? He is washing away your sin so that you can not only come into the presence of God, but the writer of Hebrews says he appears in the presence of God so that you can come boldly into the very throne room of heaven. Think about that. Every time we worship, every time you pray, you can come boldly into the very throne room of heaven. Because there is the blood of sprinkling that speaks a better word than that of Abel. Remember, Abel's blood was shed into the ground and it cried out for what? For justice, for judgment. Jesus' blood is shed into the ground and it cries out for mercy. And God hears the blood of Jesus. And he lifts you up into the very heavenly throne room. And he says, I have forgiven you all your transgressions, all your trespasses. That's the very epicenter, by the way, of the new covenant that he has remembered our sins and our lawless deeds no more, that he has put away our transgressions from us, and that he has written his laws in our hearts, so that now he has put his very law into the hearts of his people to love his law, to love him, to love doing what is right, but to not have the terror and the condemnation of the law because Christ has taken that terror. You know, I love that imagery, and I'll close with this, where Bunyan has Christian at the foot of the mountain, and he's afraid that the mountain's going to fall on him. It's so terrible, I'm going to crush him. And I've always liked to envision the picture of Christ hanging on the cross and that mountain falling on him. All of the condemnation of the law falling on him because of your sin and mine. All of that terror and dread falling on him. 
When Christ is crucified, what happens? The, the sun is darkened. The earth quakes. It is the infinitely holy God dealing in his infinite justice with his legal requirements against the sin of his people on his son to take the condemnation of the law and to bring you into his presence. Now, when we don't believe that, we are saying to God, I don't believe that you have done what you said you did in your son. And when we think a better route is to go to Mr. Legality's house and try to be a good enough person, we are actually offending the God who has removed his condemnation from us by putting it on his son and saying, I don't believe that you have taken away the sting of death, the curse of the law. I don't believe that there is now no condemnation for those in Christ. You know, one of the glorious things we get to do as new covenant believers, we get to look back over all of this and we get to say, isn't it glorious that we were born on this side of the cross that Christ has already fulfilled everything, that we get to see the whole picture, and that we can know that Christ has hushed the law's loud thunder, that he has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. If you're in Christ, there is no condemnation. You're trusting the Lord Jesus. There is no terror of judgment to come. Yes, we acknowledge that this God is a consuming fire, but we draw near in childlike faith, we fear him with childlike reverence. We cry out, Abba, Father, to the same God who appeared at Sinai because he has put that condemnation on the Lord Jesus. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, how desperately our sinful souls need to be reminded of these truths. We do thank you and praise you tonight that you have reminded us both of your holiness, the terror of your absolute, infinite holiness and righteousness, and yet also your graciousness that you have removed the law's loud thunder. We thank you that in the Lord Jesus we have a forerunner who has gone into your presence. We thank you that we have a better mediator of a better covenant. We thank you and praise you that you have called us to come into the very throne room of heaven. We pray, our God, that you would stir up our hearts and minds with these truths, that you would quiet our guilty consciences, that you would give us that sweet desire to both obey you and to grow in our communion with you, and yet to know that you have done everything for us through the death, resurrection, and intercession of Christ. And so would you press those truths deep into our minds and hearts, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.